Welcome to Audio Club, a new music technology podcast from Yorkshire Sound Women Network. I'm Caro C, and each month I'm going to be talking to some amazing women and gender minority audio professionals who will be telling us about their work and also sharing some creative inspiration, career advice, gear tips and much more. In this episode, we're talking about sound design. As we'll discover, what exactly that means is hotly debated. But broadly speaking, it's the process where audio on a film, TV programme, theatre show, podcast is edited together with background sounds, music and extra effects to create a sound world that immerses the listeners in the action. My guests are two professionals who make that magic happen. Iwan Obinyan is a composer, producer and filmmaker who with her company II Studios has worked on a host of documentaries and podcasts as well as creating Audio Club's own title music. While Emma Butt is a sound editor, dubbing mixer and ADR or automatic dialogue replacement recordist whose credits include Game of Thrones, EastEnders and Doctor Who. She's also carried out some eye-opening research into the lack of diversity within the post-production industry. More about this later. First, we'll be hearing from Iwan and Emma about what they do, their favourite projects and chosen tools, and some tips for following them into the industry. So join us as we create our own sound world with Audio Club. Hello, Emma and Iwan, and welcome to the Audio Club podcast. So this time we're talking about sound design and obviously I'm aware that both of you do lots of other things, including sound design. But if we were to focus on your sound design work, could you tell us a bit about what exactly that involves? So maybe Iwan, if we can start with you, please. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a real honor to be here. So sound design for me, there's like the old school definition of the words, which is like making a film come together sound wise and just bringing it all together and mixing. And if you need to create some new sounds like with Jurassic Park, all of that good stuff. But then there's also like the new school definition, which seems to be like dropping wishes into things and then that's it. And maybe making some crazy sounds or whatever. And that's defined as sound design. So for me in my work, I kind of do both. Um, So I work in film, I work in music, I work in podcasting and all three require sound design. So whether that's editing stuff, whether it's mixing, whether it is dropping wishes into things for transitions, creating new sounds, that sort of thing, going out into the field and recording sounds, sampling sounds to create new sounds or to use them as, you know, beds in, in a film or in the background of a podcast to set the scene. Um, so that's kind of what I do. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I like I like the definition of as long as you've got a good whoosh, you can be a sound designer. And there's there's, there's something in that. But, um, but also, yeah, there's a lot more. I mean, it's actually a very delicate balancing job, isn't it? Um, especially if there's music involved as well. Absolutely. And you kind of want your sound design to enhance whatever you're doing and not dominate it. Mm. And sometimes... I don't know, sometimes I guess nowadays it can feel like people are almost using sound design to compensate for maybe poor story or or whatever it is. Do you know what I mean? Whereas really it's an enhancement rather than the feature, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. But I won't get too political because it's a controversial <laughs> area. <laughs> Emma, what about your work? Oh, I think I'm about to get political now. <laughs> I have to say, I hate the word sound design. Oh, Yeah. I really, really dislike it because everybody has a very warped idea of what sound design is. If you look up uh, Randy Tom, who's one of the best sound designers around, his definition of sound design is when you take a sound and manipulate it so that it becomes something completely different or you create a new sound. A lot of people consider sound editing sound design and it's not. You were taking libraries, you were taking sounds that already exist, and you're using them in a way to help tell the story. That's not sound design, that's sound editing. So I have a real bugbear about the term sound design. So what I do is sound editing, and I will take 
libraries of sounds, libraries of already recorded sounds, I might manipulate them slightly in by, you know, affecting them in some way, but they'll still retain some of their original qualities. And I'll help them to enhance the story and help tell the story. The sound design that I do, it's not there as a main feature. It's just there to back everything up, to add some textures, to add some layers, if that makes sense. Yeah. Again, that's supporting what's going on in either the narrative or on screen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And there is a lot of layering, isn't there? Because I know, um, um, I think the, the guy who did the Deadpool trailers and has spoken Nenita Desai, and they were talking about most of their sounds, there is a layering involved. One of the things that I get really frustrated by is when I'm working with new soundies and trying to train them up, they think that if they just find one atmosphere there that matches what's on screen, that's it, they're done. And no, it's not, because you need to add texture, especially if you're doing a 5.1 mix. You need stuff that you can pan around that will make the world feel real and feel full. I always start with a base layer of a neutral wind and then build it up from there and look and see what's on screen and look and see what's going to tell part of the story. You're trying to add the things that you can't see. So if I'm on a scene that's in London, um, we're just with two characters that are in maybe like a city park, but we don't see anything around them. You need to place them in that space. So I'll start adding in sirens because there's always sirens going off in London. I'll add a passing tube in the background somewhere, a passing train in the background, cars wishing by, maybe a plane going overhead. And it's all of the things that you can't see. It's about adding into that story and putting those characters into a place. Yeah. So it's more and more layers and layers and never just one sound effect and that's it. Wow. Yeah, that's so true because you've got to, they've got to feel like they're in that place and suspend disbelief. Exactly. You know, Walter Murch. Yeah, yeah. And he was obviously an editor known mostly for his editing, but he also did the sound for Apocalypse Now. He refers to himself or at least in the, his book, um, he refers to himself as a sound designer in that sort of old school sense of you're in charge of all of the sound for the film, including the sound effects. So I guess that's what I mean when I talk about that sort of old school definition. Um, obviously, there's also the sort of Jurassic Park, like literally creating new sounds out of like 10 animals and sort of making the roar of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. So I wondered what you thought about that in him referring to himself as a sound designer. I think... Walter Murch, he's kind of like a special case. Mm -hmm. I would still consider him a sound designer. So I've been to one of the talks that he gave and right. it was about The Godfather. And there's a scene where they're in a restaurant mm -hmm. and to build tension, he got this train and ran this train like way louder than it should have been in the interior of this restaurant to build tension. Mm -hmm. It's a a trick that loads of sound designers or sound editors now use. And to me, that was like taking something that shouldn't have been there mm -hmm. and redesigning it in a way that helped the story. So to me, that is sound design. And he 100% is a sound designer. And he does loads of little tricks like that in every movie that he works on. I'm being very political when I say sound design isn't sound design unless you're Designing the sound, yeah. Exactly, yeah. But I think what he does is designing the sound. Yeah, so as, dare I say, sound designers, I wonder how you sourced your whooshes and your neutral winds. Does it tend to come from sound libraries or do you also have some fun, I hope, creating your own custom sounds? Iwan, do you want to start with that? Sure. Um, yeah, so I guess sometimes the deadlines are so tight you know, people want everything yesterday. And so then you sometimes have to resort to libraries and not that there's anything wrong with libraries at all. I don't mean that at all. It's just that sometimes it's nice as a sound designer to actually design the sounds and sample things and create sounds. Um, so there are libraries that I will use and like there's loads out there um, from free ones to paid ones. And then um, I often use Logic Pro. Emma, don't shoot me. <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, we don't have cameras on, so you just missed the face I pulled right now. <laughs> I know, um, but Logic has a lot of um, loops as well that are really helpful. And then when I'm actually, I actually have the time um, on a project, I like to, you know, go out and record things. Um, I have a bank of like my own 
um, samples that I'll manipulate. I also like to create stuff using synths, you know, filters, LFOs, oscillators, noise, and just creating atmospheres and, and new sounds and whooshes and that sort of thing. I also like to use instruments as well. I have like quite a few percussion instruments as well. And you can really get some interesting sounds, tones and textures um, just by manipulating instruments that you already have as well and playing your instruments in new ways to get new sounds as well. Mm-hmm. Emma? A lot of the work that I do is actually factual and documentary when it comes to sound editing. So I never have the opportunity to go out and actually record my own sounds because there's just not the time there in the project. And a lot of the time, sound effects libraries do the trick. It needs to be natural. It needs to be realistic. If there's budget, I will always try and make sure we get Foley done so we can get like footsteps and cloth and skin movements. But nine times out of 10, I'm using sound effects libraries. I do have like a little tiny microphone that I attach to my iPhone which I'm sure plenty of Sandys out there are going to like turn their noses up at. (laughs) I don't have a Zoom, just haven't ever bothered to get one. But actually, there's a little microphone called the Shure SMV88, I think it is. Mm. And I know for a fact that a lot of my Sandy friends use this too. And it just connects into your iPhone and I bring that with me if I'm going on holiday. And I've used that to record some atmospheres and sound effects that I'll bring home. And if I can, I'll use them. But majority it's sound effects libraries there's actually a really really good website that's good for a starter pack which is games.xyz and that has tons of free sounds that people can download if they're starting off and they want to find a library that isn't going to cost them a fortune because it does take years to build up your sound effects library i mean every company that i've worked in i think i've borrowed air quotes the sound effects library from that company and built it up that way yeah me too it tends to be a mix of accumulative sort of for me also found sounds the things that sound like even plastic bags can sound like rain or crunching leaves or different things and when you have the time and space it's nice to play with it exactly yeah. i know brian hodgson how he got the sound for the tardis for doctor who with some house keys inside an old piano when you do get the chance to use your creative thinking it must be quite fun, mustn't it? Definitely, definitely. It's, it's, it's really immersive as well. Like I can lose hours just in, the, in my sound world doing my thing. I just don't get to do it as much just because of mm. the busyness of the day, you know. I wonder if you could tell us about a favourite project that you've worked on and kind of the stages of the process and what you found most rewarding about it. So I recently did something for the BBC called Buttercup. And that was by 20 Stories High featuring Dorcas Seb as the lead character. It's a pandemic film as well. So it was very limited because we couldn't go out and we had strict instructions from the BBC not to go out and do any sort of field recordings or anything like that. So I had to find a way to create the sounds of the main character's world with what I had to hand like on my computer and also around my house. Um, So recording things like the fan noise from my laptop. So like trying to get my my laptop revved up and just trying to record that fan noise to add to the white noise that we used for her interior world. Um, And yeah, it was just, it was very limited, but I think in that limitation, it it was like, I don't know, it's almost like it pushed me in, in ways to come up with sounds in in new and interesting ways. Mm. And also there was a lot of time constraint as well. So it's like I had to think fast in a limited space. And by the end of it, I was knackered, but I was really happy with what I'd produced in like literally a week and a half for a full length film. I know sometimes you forget or you can not realize just how much work goes into just one program or one film. Yep. And then, yeah. On to the next one. Literally, yeah. Mm. Emma? It's probably a a documentary uh, show that's due to come out at Christmas, but it was about Quinton Blake. Many people will recognise his work as an illustrator from the Royal Doll books. This guy is like, I think he's nearing 90 now, and they decided to make a documentary about his life. They got him into this room with a big white board and got him to draw his life story on the board. 
and then had like illustrations throughout the show of his work throughout the years. So all of the illustrations, all of the animations needed to have sound put onto them. And obviously these are so well-known illustrations like the twits from Royal Dal and there was characters from David Walliams' book, The Boy in the Dress, and loads more that you would recognize. So the sound had to be spot on and it had to be engaging and immersive to help tell this story of this incredible man's life. And that was really tough because we had, I think it was a 60-minute doc and I had three days and that was to do sound edit premix and final mix with the client and notes. And that's kind of standard for an hour-long doc definitely didn't take three days I definitely put in extra time but it was amazing and I think it turned out really really well and it was just a fun one because a lot of the stuff like I said is very serious and very factual and needs to be realistic and this I got a chance to have a little bit of a play around and make it quite fun and quite joyful which was nice yeah sounds awesome it's very much about pushing your imagination under the strain of time yeah exactly (laughs) yeah brilliant Is there an industry standard for software that um, sound editors or designers tend to use? (laughs) This is where we argue. (laughs) This is the beef. This is where we get get our gloves on. (laughs) Um, I don't know. I think for me, there are some software was originally designed for, as in like it it kind of had its strengths in the post-production world, right? So obviously we know Pro Tools, like pretty much all post-production, a lot of let me start with that. Um, a lot of <laughs> post-production people use Pro Tools. However, I will say that in the last 10 years or so, most software manufacturers, their doors can do all of the post-production things that you would need to do. It's just that some are more geared towards it than others. So for example, I've done all the films that I've done in Logic Pro X. I've got people that work on my team who use Nuendo, for example. And then, of course, I've got people on my team who work with Pro Tools. So I think the most important thing is that you can do industry standard professional work in your software rather than worrying about the software, if that makes sense. That, that's my point of view. That was the most diplomatic <laughs> answer ever. <laughs> Go ahead, Emma, shoot your shot. <laughs> We need more opinionated women. I love how Julie McLaren, and I don't know if you know, heard of her, she's so opinionated about no computer whatsoever in the recording studio. She said Pro Tools, the day Pro Tools came out, that was basically the day the music industry died in terms of quality. (laughs) So that's the kind of thing. Yeah, It's like, yeah, okay, fair enough, if that's how you think. She did a brilliant 15-minute film, actually, called The Psychology of Recording. I definitely um, recommend it. She sounds like my kind of woman. I'm not going to lie. (laughs) I mean, I'm sorry, Pro Tools all the way. I don't understand how people use Nuendo and Logic to do the work that we do in post-production, but I have full respect for anybody who does. Um, I just find Pro Tools has it. I mean, it has its faults and it definitely needs improvement in certain areas, but I just think a lot of the plugins that we use are designed for Pro Tools. Uh, The manufacturers of the plugins haven't really branched out into Nuendo and Logic completely yet. But you may correct me on this. I think like Orex, have they gone over to Nuendo and Logic yet? Absolutely. Yeah. All of the plugins that you use for, so for example, even when it comes to broadcast standards, um, whether it's WLM Plus, whether it's LCAS, whether it's Viz or whatever, it, I can never remember that one, um, or Ulean, they're all on audio unit, which is what Logic Pro uses. Okay, so even all the Nugent plugins like Upmix and Downmix and Paragon. I think Paragon is on Logic. Sorry, totally grilling you Yeah, now. you are grilling me and I'm like going, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to double check. Don't quote me on those ones, but yeah, a lot of them are and you can, I mean, I do work that is broadcast in Logic Pro X, you know, so... And I also find that there's always alternatives to those plugins. Like I know people say like, you know, industry standard plugins or whatever, but I think as long as what you produce sounds good and the client likes it and it's broadcast ready, I don't see why you can't use Logic Pro or Nuendo. Yeah. I mean, I 
totally agree with that. And I actually have no problem with people using software that they're comfortable with. Because like you said, it's more important that the end result is what the client wants and suits what is being done. I think I'm just a stubborn feck and I don't want to change from Pro Tools at this point. Yeah. But I think the other big one that's actually coming in a lot is Reaper. Mm. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Especially for immersive sound, that's doing so much more than Pro Tools can even imagine to do. And it's free. Exactly. Well, well, listen, I think I think people should pay a little bit for Reaper because they do yeah. such a good service. And I'm just like, know. you know, pay 50 yeah. quid and get this amazing piece of software. But you can use it for free as yeah. well. I just want to put that out there. <laughs> no, same here. I think the same with Audacity. These people work really hard to build that software. So, you know, I guess the, the obvious thing about Pro Tools is it is very expensive. I, I you know I used learned all about it. I got to, you know, nearly being awarded an anorak in the keyboard shortcuts, you know, tests and all the rest of it at, at sound engineering school. But when I came out of there, there was just no way I could, uh, you know, the risk of investing in a computer that can manage it, mm. let alone everything else. Um, I think that that can be a bit of a barrier. And I think that's partly why things like Logic have probably come through and maybe even Ableton. Mm-hmm. The only thing I will say in defense of Pro Tools is that, well, actually, it's not even in defense of Pro Tools. As a freelancer going into different studios, you have to know Pro Tools because I think there's only one studio in London that doesn't use Pro Tools. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have Nuendo. And even then, they still have Pro Tools in most of their rooms. Um, Every post-production house that I have been into uses Pro Tools. And if you're a freelancer... And your job is to go into a facility, then you have to know their software. So I do get what you mean. It is very, very expensive and it can limit people being able to, you know, get their own equipment to get their own setup when they leave university and start out. But if you're going to be freelance, you do have to know it, unfortunately. Mm. Yeah. 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 I was going to ask about the, especially the last couple of years, how much of your work needs to be a home studio setup. Is it worth having one anyway? I, I mean, I know a lot of people that have a home studio, but then as you say, Emma, you can actually just go around working in facilities that already have the equipment. So what would be your, your advice in terms of do you set up a really lovely studio with, you know, your subs or your 5.1s or whatever, or do you just manage with a laptop and headphones and then use studios as much as possible? I would say have your own setup if you can. It doesn't have to be anything fancy. And I think that's what everybody gets stressed about when they're starting out is that, oh, I need to get like big cheese grater Mac and I need to get these really massively expensive speakers and I need to get a 5.1 setup and it needs to be a proper studio. And no, it doesn't. It really, really doesn't. I mean, if some people saw the setup that I had at home, they'd be like, how the heck is she working? <laughs> your ears are your most important thing. I always go to Hoxton Max. And I get refurbished Macs from them all the time because they're like half the price of buying a new Mac. Um, and obviously with Pro Tools, Macs just work a little bit better. I have like my little small Genelex. I have like a tiny one fader mixer because I only mix with one <laughs> finger at a time. I don't know why anybody needs eight faders because if you're using eight faders and eight fingers, like feck me, that's some skill. <laughs> but I know no one who does that. Um, and then I have a keyboard and a mouse and my monitors. and. That's my setup. And I obviously have some soundproofing around to make sure that I can hear okay. But that's nothing fancy. And obviously that still costs money and it still costs a lot to start up. But once you have it, then you're you're done. I think if you don't have your own home setup, it makes things very, very tricky, especially as a freelancer, because you will still get a lot of jobs where facilities don't have the space in-house and that's why they're hiring you. So they need you to have your own setup and they need you to have your own equipment in order to do the work and in order to get the jobs. So it's kind of, yeah, it's one of those things that you you kind of have to shell out the money at the start and then it's worth it in the long run. Yeah, I would echo the advice about secondhand equipment. I've always used secondhand Macs and also even, you know, monitors, speakers, sound on sound, for example, they have their readers ads. And you can get stuff that people have bought and then they've gone, oh, they want to buy the next new thing. So what really well looked after gear that they're giving away, not for profit kind of thing. Microphones as well to sort of build up your necessary kit without having to shell out too much. Yeah. I won home studio or 
not basically or what and what is your home studio I agree with everything that Emma said in the sense that yeah have a little setup of some sort and it doesn't have to be all the high-end gear so a lot of people have all the gear and no idea there's no point in that do you know what I mean it's like just get something simple and know it and know it really really well because you can mix amazing things on budget speakers if you know those speakers really well and you know where to compensate so for example knowing your speakers really well means listening to a lot of music on those speakers watching a lot of films on those speakers so that you know where it's strong and where it's weak right and then when you start to do your mixing and mastering or editing or whatever you know what you're doing so it's about knowing your gear I'd also add to what Emma was saying in that also invest in a good pair of headphones as well, like a good pair of closed back headphones and open back headphones so that you can hear all the details in your mix and be able to mix like, for example, I don't know, it's 12 midnight and you've got to do something and you've got a decent pair of headphones that you know really well and you can make all your changes. I just got back from three months in Bali and I only had a pair of headphones and no access to a studio. And in that time I've mixed, mastered, edited, you know, podcasts, music, and films that have been broadcast. So it's really about knowing your tools rather than just having all of the fancy gear, but you don't really know how to use it or get the most out of it. But yeah, I definitely think having a small setup is super, super important. Yeah. And I think in terms of speakers, it's obviously the room as well. It has a massive impact. Yeah. Yeah. You can invest in acoustic paneling or you can just know the space really well and know what it's doing. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like in my room, I actually have no acoustic paneling <laughs> no me neither and my mastering guy couldn't quite believe it when I told him because I've been thinking of investing and I said to him well you know maybe I should treat myself and he was like well to be honest I master all your work and I've never heard any you're doing it fine there you go yeah I think I will when I, I move to a, a more stable place in fact the last few years I've not had any acoustic treatment in any of the places but what I do know is I know my speakers I know my headphones really well and I orient things so that there's more direct sound coming to me and less sort of bouncing around the room. Do you know what I mean? It's just like little tweaks and changes that you can do. Yeah, so, avoiding yeah. corners. Precisely, exactly. Speaking of headphones, what are your favorite headphones? Okay, so I've got a pair of closed back and a pair of open back. So my newest addition with the open backs is some Sennheiser HD 600s, which are beautiful, like I really, really like them a lot. Super transparent. You can just hear everything, which, yeah, you're supposed to with those. And then for my closed back headphones, I've got some Sony. I'm going to have to take them off one sec. Ah, oh, some Sony MDR7506s. And so I use those like when I'm recording or like I'm on this podcast now. So you don't get any bleed out of them into the mic. Emma, favorite headphones? So I don't really use headphones unless I'm recording ADR Uh, because a lot of the time when I'm doing sound editing I'm also mixing so I need to be able to hear properly what it's going to sound like and headphones just make it too close it's not going to replicate what a viewer is going to hear when they watch it on a tv because they're not going to be like ear up to the tv screen or at least I hope not so if I am using headphones it tends to be the Beradynamic GT100s because if I'm Using them, it's usually ADR and I want to be able to hear the voice nice and clear and have everything blocked out pretty much. Um, But otherwise, yeah, I don't use them. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit about ADR? What is that? ADR, I should say, for the British people, (laughs) is automatic dialogue replacement or there's a couple of different variations of the acronym. But it basically means re-recording lines of dialogue that were done on set in a studio, in an isolated environment for various different reasons. So it could be technical faults on set. It could be additional lines to help with the script. It could be performance. It could be loop group, which is any crowded scenes that you see on screen. They'll get a group of like 10 actors to come into a studio in post-production and get them to voice all of those crowded scenes, as well as using library tracks as well. So it's a couple of different reasons why it's done. Yeah, I always get really nerdy when I get quite excited when I can spot where 
it's almost the camera's behind someone's head, an actor's yeah. head, and you can see their mouths moving. You're like, they're not saying what's on the ADR. Yeah. <laughs> it can be really annoying and spoil a film like that. <laughs> or when it's not done quite well. Like I remember in Line of Duty, there were a few ADR moments and I was like, oh, bad ADR. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, being an ADR mixer is just ruined TV on me. I can tell you that much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I can imagine. Tough, tough. I wonder how you both got into the field that you work in then. So. Did you study? Did you learn on the job? Bit of a mix of both? I did study. So I went to Leeds College of Music and I did a degree in music tech and production. And obviously while I was on the course, I was just maxing out the studios, doing loads of gigs. Um, I used to do loads of live sound in and around Leeds at various clubs and venues. And then I kind of wanted to get more into the production side of things. So I kind of stopped the live stuff and started focusing more on building up my home studio and and doing mixes for people recording myself recording my band that sort of thing and then you just build up from there and you kind of get known as an audio person and then as opportunities present themselves you kind of pivot and do whatever your skills will allow you to do because you've got to put food on the table right and so fast forward I find myself now doing a lot of podcasts films that sort of thing um, and now I want to sort of go back and do more music. So that's the plan for 2022. Brilliant. I kind of did the same route. I was really into music as a kid and used to sing choirs and got really interested in sound engineering from being in the choir and we were recording a CD for charity. So studied a university back in Dublin called Pulse Recording Studios, which was a recording studio as well. And they now own Windmill Lane which is the famous recording studio back in Dublin. Got into live sound as well. Was in a venue for a year doing work experience while I was doing my course. Absolutely hated it. Thought the hours were just horrific and the sexism was really, really bad. Yeah. And then coming towards my end of my course, I was like, oh, feck, need to get a job. Applied to all of the studios in Dublin that were both music and post-production and got offered a job in a post house as a runner. And absolutely loved it and ended up staying there for nine years and then moving to the UK six years ago. So, yeah, that's kind of that was my career path. Yeah. So a lot of it was for you was learning on the job. Yeah, pretty much. The course that I did covered radio, TV and music and live sound. So we did do a bit of post-production, but it wasn't enough. And I think no matter what university course you do go to, you still have to learn on the job because yeah. there's just real world experiences that a university course, as incredible as they are, they can only give you the foundation. They can't give you what you're going to experience. They can't give you the client interaction. Yes. They can't give you the problems that are going to pop up or, you know, the technical issues that might come up as well that you're going to have to like deal with on the job you know, very, very quickly and just think on your feet. So I think no matter what you do, whether you go to university or go straight into the working world, you're still going to learn on the job either way. Yeah. No, I forget being told at sound engineering school that about 50% of it is your technical skills and the rest of it is, um, yeah, either problem solving and just working with people. Yeah, absolutely. I always say that as a soundie, sometimes you're particularly, I guess, in the kind of work that I do, you're almost like part therapist yeah you know? <laughs> do you know what I mean big it's time. like <laughs> big time right you're having to like get people to warm up to open up to relax you know your people skills are really important I think knowing the limitations of whatever gear you've got and having like a whole backup it's like a database of all the problems you've solved and how this current problem mm. might you know, lend itself to a particular problem you solved like four years ago or three years ago. It's like university courses can't teach that because they can't set up all of these scenarios for you to solve all of these problems. So I would always say if you're at university, if you can do what Emma did and work in the industry, even if it's as an intern or something, then do that. Yeah. 100%. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely, or even be in those areas. So maybe you're working in a bar that's also a club. So at least you can see it all happening and find out. And... I pretty much lived in the clubs in Leeds while I was at Leeds College of Music. Like all of them, the wardrobe, hi-fi club, smokestack, elbow rooms, atrium. I was at all of them doing sound, 
working in the cloakroom, working behind the bar, anything to be around music all the time and talking to all the sound engineers and learning as much as I could. Yeah, yeah, which takes us nicely on to the next question I was going to ask, which is what kind of tips you'd give people who were starting out and maybe tips you wish you'd been given when you were starting out if you want to build a career in in sound design or post-production. I remember one of the things that used to be said time and time again was that it's who you know, not necessarily what you know. And I obviously didn't know much and I didn't know too many people in the industry. I didn't really know anyone, to be fair. And I wish I'd taken that advice maybe a bit more seriously or someone had told me what it means to network beyond just working in clubs and stuff. It's just sort of nurturing those connections, being present in certain spaces as well, you know, certain studios and sort of having an eye for opportunities and being able to capitalize on those opportunities, maybe speaking more to my tutors as well, because a lot of them were working in the industry. And that's almost like my first layer of networks, seeing as I didn't really know anyone in the industry at that time. Right. So I think if I'd had a bit more courage, spoken to my tutors more, tried to find out what they're working on to see where I could help out, that sort of thing. I think maybe I maybe have, would have moved maybe faster. You never know with these things, but just understanding that it really is who you know and you need to be in certain places, I think is what I would suggest as a first tip. I didn't know anybody going into the industry either. Like I knew nothing about the industry, uh, about TV and film. I got very, very lucky with my job, but I would say be pushy to a certain degree. Yes. Like, so what happened with me when I got that job as a runner in a post house was that I went in for the interview and they weren't going to hire me because they thought I was too timid. And the reason I ended up getting it was because they had said to me that I would hear by the Friday on their decision, whether I got it or not. When the Friday came and I hadn't got an email, I emailed them. I didn't just accept it that I wasn't going to hear back from them. So when I emailed them, the girl that they had hired instead of me that they thought wasn't too timid had gone on her lunch break and never come back. And my email landed at just the right time. So when my email came in, they were like, can you start on Monday? And that's how I got the job. So I always say that to people because you need to remember that even if you don't hear back from someone, you should always follow up. Because yeah. you don't know what the situation is going to be. You don't know if that person's going to work out. You don't know if another runner is going to hand in their notice and they're going to need someone. And if they've just met you, you're going to be first on the list. So always be that little bit pushy. Don't be afraid. Reaching out to people is another big thing. Like I totally agree with networking and you should network. LinkedIn and Twitter, they're two such amazing resources that weren't really around when I was starting out. Twitter, I get a lot of work from Twitter because there's this incredible sound community. There's incredible TV and film community and having a public profile, like people don't want to work with you if they don't know you. And that saying is true, but people are willing to work with you if they know you from Twitter or if they know you from LinkedIn. I know that sounds bizarre, but it does actually work that way. If you can put up examples of what work you've done, even if it's nothing that's been broadcast, even if it's just a showreel that you have that people can easily access, then they will still reach out and they will still work with you if they like what you've done. So having that public face is really, really good. The other thing that I see so many people do, which I really wish they would cop onto and not do it, is um, make yourself contactable. Yes, so many people like I get emails quite a lot from directors and producers and hiring managers looking for recommendations of diverse location recordists or diverse post-production crew and for location recordists none of the feckers have their email addresses anywhere public so there's no way of contacting them except from their like personal twitter and if I'm at getting someone who's looking for recommendations of people, I need to be able to give them an email address or a phone number that they can contact them on. And you can't get that. And sometimes they don't check their Twitter or they don't check their LinkedIn. So it's impossible to get that information. So make yourself contactable, even if it means having like a specific work email address. Just have that out there so people can reach you. Yeah, 
Or just a simple web page, yeah. you know, not even having a proper website, but at least on it, you've got contact, an email or a contact form or something. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah. And, and actually wanted to talk a bit about your research you did yourself, Emma, last year, which sort of highlighted how TV post-production in particular has a diversity problem, especially around gender and race. Can you tell us a little bit about that research and what you discovered? So I'm mixed race. I'm half Pakistani, half Irish. And nine times out of 10 on the crews that I work on, I'm the only woman and I'm the only person remotely of color. Everybody else is usually white male. And I've been banging my drum for years saying, this isn't okay. We need to change this. We need more women. I get people pushing back saying there aren't women out there. There's not diverse crews out there. And I was like, there are you're just not hiring them exactly you're just not looking for them and this isn't okay and so I kind of decided that I wanted to show on facts and figures like how bad the situation is because I also kept on getting the pushback of oh well there's more women in sound now than there used to be and it is improving and I was like no it's not I know it's not so I decided that I wanted to look at the highest rated tv shows across the main broadcasters which is BBC One, BBC Two, Channel Four, Channel Five and Sky. And thankfully, Marcus Ryder, me and him follow each other on Twitter quite a lot. And he reached out and he was like, we're setting up the Lenny Henry Center. You know, we kind of want to work with you. You know, what are you thinking of doing? And I told him that I wanted to do this research. So he was like, well, how about you do it through us? And what that will do is it will give you a better kind of standing at the end of it when you go to broadcasters and say, Here's the hard facts and figures. The industry is fecked. We need to do something about it. And it's not just Emma Book going in saying that. It's Emma Book and the Lenny Henry Center. So I did the research and it was possibly worse than even I expected. So out of 66 job roles across all of the main broadcasters, I think six were women out of the 66 and one person... (laughs) out of the 66 was mixed race and that was it everybody else identified as white (laughs) out of the 66 three people identified as having a disability but that wasn't a physical disability and that was it that was the diversity and then what was worse was I did interviews with five different people and their stories like two in particular stick with me And I know it's true. So one was from a black man who told me that when he goes in to meet new clients, he feels like he has to bring a white male colleague with him because he knows that he's going into the lion's den and he knows that he needs to make the client feel more comfortable and they will be more comfortable with another white person in the room. I just thought, how wrong is that? that he feels he has to bring a white male colleague with him. Every black person that I've spoke to across all different industries has said the exact same thing. They don't seem shocked when I say this story. They say, yeah, that's what we all have to do. Yeah, the statistics are still shocking. And what steps do you think should be taken to improve the situation? There's quite a few things that can be done that's not being done and it's really frustrating. So the first thing is a policy change from all of the broadcasters. If the broadcasters said that any new commission that they took on had to commit to a diversity quota across their craft and technical crews, that would implement change because what that would do is post houses would then have to start making sure that their staff is diverse, which if you look at any of the post houses across the UK right now and look at the team's page, 99% of them are all white men. There's very little diversity. In order for that post house to get a job in, they would have to make sure that their crew is diverse, otherwise they couldn't do the job. So automatically, that makes the post houses change the way they hire. In order for that production company to get the commission from the broadcaster, they would have to commit to using a post house that has a diverse crew. So that's making the production company think, well, we need to find somewhere that we can go that is diverse. So that's one change that can definitely be done straight away, which does not cost any money whatsoever for the broadcaster or the production company. And in theory, it doesn't really cost any money for 
post houses either. They just have to change the way they hire, which is very, very easy to do. So that's one way. The other way is a training scheme. Something that was done with directors quite a few years ago was the BBC Continuing Drama New Director Scheme. And what that did was it got a new director who might have been in factual or kids or theatre or another job role altogether and wanted to get into directing. And they would put them onto something like Holby City or Casualty or EastEnders, get them to shadow a director for a block and get them to see the whole process. And then they would give them an episode of that show to direct themselves. And it was all paid, so it wasn't done for free. It gave them support. It gave them training. It gave them a mentor. And most importantly, it gave them a credit. And credits are gold dust. And that's what gets you your next job. The same can be applied into sound. So we have a lot of talented crews from diverse backgrounds. But the problem is they may be wanting to get into TV and film, but they're stuck in a different sector or a different industry and they're struggling to get their foot in the door because there's so many barriers put in place to let them in. If we had a training scheme like that, that would stop all of that. Again, coming back to networking, this would expose them to a new network of people that wouldn't have known that they were there in the first place. So we could put them with a, a sound supervisor on dialogue or sound effects or re-recording mixing who could train them up for, say, two or three episodes on a drama, then let them go off and do an episode themselves. And again, same situation as director scheme. It would be paid. They'd have a mentor. They'd have a credit. The post-production supervisor and all the hiring managers would now be exposed to someone new that they didn't know existed before. And hopefully that would then lead on to more work. But none of this has been done. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. Well, I hope that, yeah, similar within the electronic music world, I'm part of an organisation network called Female Pressure and we had to make that fuss. And I know that Vic Bain is doing that within the music industry generally. Iwan, would you have any thoughts on how we could improve the situation? I second everything that, Emma said, and I think um, organizations like Yorkshire Sound Women Network are really important because one thing I always say is it's it's all well and good having quotas and encouraging people to hire more diverse workers. But if the space itself isn't safe or the person isn't equipped to deal with the microaggressions and all of the things that happen when you walk into a white majority space, then you're kind of setting people up for failure. So I think it's important to have groups like Yorkshire Sound Women Network and I might get this wrong. Is it Women's Audio Mission? Yeah. Yeah, So organizations like that, that A, give you a safe space to talk about your struggles and get advice from other women or other people of color that then fortifies you for going into those environments. Because I was always the only female on all of my courses I was very often the only black person. So, you know, I'm a black woman in a space that's mostly white male. And the energy that you get from people ranges from what are you doing here to them trying to give you something else to do because they can't fathom that you're actually a sound engineer. So it's almost like, oh, hit the makeup departments over there. And it's like, no, I'm actually here to do sound and record sound. And depending on your temperament, that can be really demoralizing and it can make you just walk away. And I, I've known people who've just walked away from it and said, I can't be bothered. It, it's so stressful. So we need to make the spaces safer or we need to have safe spaces where people can recoup <laughs> to go back out into these spaces. Yeah. And those online communities or networks that are there now. They weren't there when I started. <laughs> they might not have been as strong when you were. And that's part of people standing up for themselves. I know the Saffron yeah. Music, for example, based in Bristol, there's mm-hmm. 2% Rising, Female Pressure mentioned, Yorkshire mm-hmm. Sound Women Network, Omni Collective, Women's Audio Mission. So I think if you can look for those more visible kind of organizations and support networks, then I think it really helps you to see the diversity of people who are working every single day in sound. Yeah. And I would also add, BGDM as well. So Brown Girls, Doc, Mafia. 
amazing. They've got a whole database now on their website of all of the people of color who are women in the industry doing various things, everything from directing all the way through to sound, sound design, music, editing, all of it. So there's really no excuse. And anyone in the 21st century who's saying that there are no diverse crews are lying. Because even when I think back historically, you know, black people have been making films forever and they've been staffed with black crews. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like music videos, you know, when I think about people like Hype Williams and stuff who were luminaries in their field and they had black people on their crews. And this is going back to like the 80s and the mid 90s. And I also call out Sound on Sound as well. You know, it's the whole institution, yeah. you know, it's the magazines who only ever feature white sound engineers when they talk about production. And it's always these white guys, you know, and it's not to take away from them, but it's just that black people have been producing music since forever as well. We have our engineers who are doing groundbreaking things in the world of sound, in the world of music production, in the world of film, right? So anybody who's saying in the 21st century that they can't find diverse people, I'm sorry, get a pair of specs from Specsavers and sort yourself out. Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. And diversity, you know, you've got a diverse audience whether it's gender or race or anything. Therefore, it's only right that the people behind the screen, as well as in front of it, that you have that rich richness of diversity. Absolutely. So finally, where can listeners find you and find out about your work online? I have a website, so that's iistudios.com. I also have Instagram, which is me, Iwan Obinyan, but that's actually private. And then there's my company, ii.studios. That's AIAI.studios. I'm on Twitter, um, but I don't use it as much as, as Emma, but I always <laughs> see Emma's post and I try to retweet every so often. So yeah, I'm on Twitter as myself, Iwan Obinyan. Yeah, that's it. And as it's been clearly stated, I am on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I am a Twitter addict. Yeah, I'm on there at Emma Butt Sound. LinkedIn as well, Emma Butt Sound. And I think my website is emmabuttsound.co.uk. So yeah, I'm all over the gaff. Very easy to find. We're contactable. We're contactable. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. That's what we need. Well, well done both of you on your awesome work and your success. And yeah, all the barriers obviously you've had to overcome to get where you are. So yeah, absolutely awesome. And wish you all the best with your continued adventures in sound. Thank you. Thank you. Audio Club is a podcast from Yorkshire Sound Women Network presented by me, Cara C, and edited by Joe Kennedy. The theme music is by Iwan Obinyan and it was produced by Abby Bliss. This podcast is supported using public funding by the National Lottery through Arts Council England. To find out more about Yorkshire Sound Women Network, you can visit yorkshiresoundwomen.com. Thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>